It's not over now. It's not over. Sometimes we need to speak that to ourselves. And in fact, let's just speak that out loud today. This is for you, and you're saying this for yourself, and your condition, wherever you're at, whatever you're hoping that'll take place, whatever you think hasn't taken place that maybe not, might not take place, and maybe over someone else's life, you want to say this for them. Let's, let's just say this together. I'll give you, a, and we'll say, it's not over. Let's say it together on count of three. One, two, three. It's not over. It's not over now. It's not over right now. The theme for this year is now. Not tomorrow, not hoping that six weeks from now, not a year from now, but right now. That somehow we'll live with a sense of urgency. And today's message, really, if we live with the urgency of the belief of this message, it would, seriously, it would, you would leave here, seriously, completely different. You'd walk out, and not only would you be different, but every single person you come in contact would say, wow, that's different. It could radically revolutionize you as an individual, us as the followers and believers, and the people of the way who call ourselves Christians, and in turn, every person that bumped into us will be radically changed forever. Because the world is littered, and with Christians, by the way, who have given up for some reason or another, who have given up over someone's situation in their life, who have given up their dreams, who have just really, like we've been talking about, settled and said, this is as good as it's going to get, who believe that somehow that God doesn't want to continue to, to live out and work out something miraculous in their life, that somehow we're not deserving of it. It's, we, we, we wrestle with these thoughts from the enemy that says we don't deserve any good or grace or love from God. We, we think things like, well, he gave me lots of chances, and I'm, I'm sure he's saying up in heaven, that's it, that's 24th time, you're done. I got great news for us today. It's not over now. And we have a God of grace who wants to give you tons of grace. Let me just say it this way. God never reaches a point in his ruling where he runs out of grace for you. Never. And he never will. Now, wrap your mind around that. You mean... No matter where I'm at, no matter what condition I find myself, no matter how horrible I screwed up, God didn't say, well, you've reached your limit. The answer to that is he hasn't reached a limit with grace in your life. Now, what does that mean to us? That means that we can somehow strip these thoughts that God doesn't want to turn us into something magnificent and beautiful to give him glory. That somehow... We have to remind ourselves of our past. We're really good. We worry that somehow someone might remember what we did in high school. Because if somehow they remember that I was this kind of person in high school, then I would never be able to be the person I want to be today. That they would never give me the chance to ever try again because they are freezing me in the past. Some of us are still holding on to this ugly, sinful incident in our past where it wasn't very pretty. And we think, well... The only thing God wants for me then is kind of live below my redemptive potential and then, oh, I can't really have what he intended for me. But every once in a while, someone says, no, that's not the God I serve. And every once in a while, you see this person jump out into the mainstream. They remove themselves from just this phone salesman of, of life 
And all of a sudden, they walk through fear. They step out and they say, you know what? I'm going after my dream and I'm just going to take the grace that God has given me. And all of a sudden, they find themselves doing something that they always wanted to, but never thought they could. Let me give you an example of that that has happened in our world a few years ago. On Britain's Got Talent, a man jumped onto the scene that was a nobody who probably said, this is probably what I'll do the rest of my life. And he walked onto the scene and everything changed for him. Watch Paul Potts. But for the next contestant, the world of showbiz seems a million miles away. It's Paul, a mobile phone salesman from South Wales. By day, I sell mobile phones. My dream is to spend my life doing what I feel that I was born to do. Paul, what are you here for today, Paul? To sing opera. I've always wanted to sing as a career. Confidence is, has always been sort of like a difficult thing for me. I've always found it a little bit difficult to be completely confident in myself. OK. Ready when you are. So you work at Carphone Warehouse, <laughs> and you did that. I wasn't expecting that. No, neither was I. <laughs> this was a complete breath of fresh air. I thought you were absolutely fantastic. You have an incredible voice. I think if you keep singing like that, you are going to be one of the favourites to win this whole competition. I think we've got a case of a little lump of coal here that is going to turn into a diamond. Okay. Moment of truth, young man. Piers. Absolutely yes. 
Yes. Paul, you are through to the next round. Congratulations. You must be over the moon. I am. A bit shocked at the moment. Are you? <laughs> and as Paul heads home happy, the judges think they might have found something special in Cardiff. I like shows where somebody isn't a professional, has a talent, isn't aware of it, has a normal job, and then you see something else. Mm. I like that. Mm. And that's what that oh, guy has. discovered a little gem. Yeah. A frog that will turn into a prince. Yeah. yeah. I love moments like that. When out of nowhere, this person who had this dream, he was selling Verizon Blackberries and iPhones. And out of this dream, he gets this chance and says, maybe this isn't where I'm supposed to stay. And by God's grace, he gets a chance to step into the scene. And then he has this voice that has just been waiting in the wasteland, just waiting for an opportunity. Maybe, I don't know his story. I know a little bit. I study more about him. Plus, my wife bought every CD he's ever put out since then. Sometimes I walk in the house. <laughs> um, but something beautiful about that, where a surprise takes place, where someone with the least amounts of expectation placed on them by other people jumps out of his closet, appears on the mainstream of God, and people say, wow. Today, we're going to see an example of someone that was hiding in the wasteland, thinking that this will be the place that they end their lives because of a variety of reasons, thinking that this is it, this is as good, this is as good as it's going to get because of my past, because of my grandfather and my father, this is what I deserve. I'll never have the chance again to step out into the mainstream of life and live to the potential that I've been created to live. Well, I got good news for us here at Grace Community and around the world. Our God isn't finished with any of us yet. And he doesn't want us to remain in the pitfalls and, and, and the frozen images of our sinful past and the names that have been labeled us. He doesn't want us to just have a number like Paul Potts did. He wants to remove that number and that label and give us the identity that we're supposed to have. And you're going to see that today. And I'm going to ask you to do a few things today. I'm going to ask you not only to see it, but I'm going to ask you if you receive the grace that God so readily wants to give to you. And not only receive it, but we would be givers of grace. Just dole it out there. Just say, here, take it. I got lots of it. Here, I haven't used it like in six months. I've been doing this. Here, I got lots of reserve. Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Grace will hunt you down. Grace will hunt you down. In this room are tons of people who have the potential to come up with new patents, new resurrected marriages, new inventions, New York Times best-selling authors, 
Presidents, governors, designers, actors, pastors, missionaries, homemakers, creators, artists, musicians, ready to jump into the mainstream of life if you truly believe that you could and that God still wants you to. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Stand with me and we'll read it together. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Let's read this out loud together. 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 13. Ready, read. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is in the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodzabar. So King David had him brought from Lodzabar, from the house of Makur, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he begged down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I surely will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servants will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servant of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. You may have a seat. Aren't you glad you're not saying Mephibosheth too many times? But we have a story here of a king by the name David. Let me give you a little Old Testament background here. David came on the scene and became king. Prior to him being king was Saul, King Saul. And so normally during a kingship in the Old Testament, it was very common for the king who stepped into rule to go and look at the former king's sons and family members who ruled prior to him. It was very common for that king to execute the family members of the previous king. So kingship wasn't all what you thought it would be when your daddy wasn't ruling. You would wipe them out because there was a fear that maybe they would collect a group of individuals, build a revolution, and a coup to overthrow you. So it was very common for the king that was now ruling to go back and wipe out the family lineage of the prior king. Mephibosheth 
is the grandson of King Saul who ruled right prior to King David. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was one of David's best friends, Scripture said. Jonathan was the son of Saul. So you have Saul, Jonathan, and son of Jonathan, grandson of King Saul, Mephibosheth. Now David is now king. So what is supposed to happen is, or what normally happened was, all the relatives were wiped out and executed. David rises up one morning and says, are there any family members still left from Jonathan's family connected to Saul? Now think about this. If you were Mephibosheth and you were alive during the new ruler's time of reigning, there probably wasn't ever a moment in your life thinking, it's a good day to live. Boy, I can't wait to get up. There was probably a pattern of hiding away from others, walking with your eyes in the back of your head, living nervously, having anxiety and panic attacks because you wondered if that guy that you've never seen before was one of David's men. Look how Mephibosheth became crippled. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and look at verse 4. What made him crippled in the first place? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. Look what it says. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was how old? What's it say? Five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became what? His name was, say it again, Mephibosheth. Think about this for a second. While he was fleeing, because the family was being attacked, he gets dropped. Look what happens next. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. Read on with me. It says, now Rechab and Bana, the sons of Remnon, the Barathite, set out for the house of Ish-bosh-sheth. Why can't we just have Bob and Tom and Terry? And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went to the inner part of the house as to get some wheat. They stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with them. They traveled all night by the way of Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of whom? Do you see what's happening? They were wiping out the lineage of Saul. So they were doing what king's servants would do. Hey, you related to Saul? Hey. And so they grabbed the head to take it to David. Read on. It says, They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king against Saul and his offspring. So here you have it. Ishbosheth 
is a relative that gets wiped out. While this is taking place, a really, really smart nurse said, I better get Mephibosheth out of here because guess what? He's related too. So she grabs him, runs away, and as she's running away trying to protect Mephibosheth, they fell down and he becomes crippled in both feet. Now, pull away for a second. Not only are you living now, and when we jump into the text today, he's probably 20 years old. Not only are you living as a descendant and a relative of the former king and fearful of your life, you're living with crippled feet. Now, imagine what he began to think about himself. All the odds were stacked against him. He felt unworthy. He felt at any moment his life would be taken. Yet David says this as we read in chapter 9. Any relatives left that I can show kindness and love and grace to that are still related to Jonathan and Saul? So for the past 15 years, he lived in constant fear, not expecting much to happen. He was a recipient of death because of his grandfather. It wasn't a very hopeful situation for him. In his mind, he lived by the ghost of his past. And so when he thought about himself, he thought of, guess what? I'm a descendant of Saul. I'll never be anybody. I'm crippled. I'll never be anybody. So he was living and hiding away from David, thinking that this is as good as it's going to get. There is this sense within us, after many years of believing lies from Satan, that we too live that way as Christ followers. That we are somehow unworthy because of this thing in our past, or because we're from this family, or we're divorced, or we had this thing that we did in high school when we were 16 called like smoking pot. And so we see this person 30 years later, and they still remember us as this immature 16-year-old smoking pot. And then they see us like leading people to Jesus like, how did he do that? It's because Jesus redeems, especially in a 30-year period for crying out loud. Our landscapes are littered with bruised and battered people who have forgotten that redemption still works today. We begin to think that our situation could never, ever change. But I beg to differ with that opinion. Because I know my Savior is hunting you down today with his grace. He wants you and me. He loves you and he doesn't want you to stay in that condition that you find yourself in. It's interesting that some of you are weary from trying to protect this this horrible time in your life. It's like, I know individuals that spend all their energy, all their time protecting their past. It's like, I hope no one ever finds this out. And it's like 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, this incident where they fell, where there was this sinful episode, where it affected some people, and some individuals spend the majority of their lives still trying to hide still trying to cover that past, thinking I'm not worthy of ever stepping out into the mainstream with God again because of this thing in my past. And their whole lives is, are, is just a pattern of covering and hiding of fear, thinking what if someone finds out? You know, when you really think about that, the enemy has us so screwed up 
to think that somehow that Jesus hasn't redeemed that, that Jesus doesn't want us to move beyond that. And so we get in circles, and, and when it comes to accountability, we don't go low because I'm afraid to tell that person. And part of the reason we're afraid to tell is because we as Christians, we're good, really good at lawing people and saying, you did what? Instead of saying, praise God for redemption. Praise God for his redeeming grace. And so Mephibosheth is living in that condition. Now, I love the Hebrew language. And often it jumps out off the pages. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 again. It says that, that Mephibosheth was living in low debar. The Hebrew definition of low debar is wasteland. Mephibosheth was living in the wasteland. Isn't that what we do when we, we, we refuse to believe that God could ever move us beyond who we are and, and what, what we've done? We waste our lives instead of jumping from whatever condition we keep ourselves in and saying, I refuse to live in the wasteland. Mephibosheth was living in the wasteland, fearful. Plus, he had labeled himself, thinking that's as good as it can get. And in this room and in the link and across our world are Christians who live in the wasteland, being bruised and beat up by their own thoughts, fearful that somehow someone will find out because of this episode, maybe for a period of their life. And it's like, well, I did this. And it's like, I, this is what I deserve. Listen to me. God doesn't want Christ's followers to live in the wastelands. He wants us to remove ourselves and say, guess what? I took the wasteland of your life to the cross. And so David, years later, is going to throw some unusual grace on someone that is undeserving in other people's eyes. Mephibosheth by a worldly standard, not a godly standard, was the scum of the earth. And he lived in fear. At least that's how he feels. But let me remind you of something that you need to be reminded of and you need to remind others of. Grace lets you abandon your crippled past. We don't have to stay there. We're not saying, yeah, well, you wasted a year of your life. You were, you were a divorcee. You were an addict. You were a thief. You, you, you were a pornographer. You were, you, you left your kids, you did that, you did, I mean, just, just throw anything in there. You dropped out of high school, how could you ever be used? You only went to ninth grade, you only went to 10th grade, my, uh, or 11th grade. I love my stepfather's view on that, he's 81. And in 11th grade, he quit because he had to go get a job. And he says, Jim, if I had to do all over again, I would have quit sooner. <laughs> he knows who he is in Christ. He's not labeled by I'm an 11th grader. He's a, a born again, hell stomping, kingdom advancing follower of Christ. And he's 11th grade. Yeah, praise God. You see, we got to get over those labels that we place on ourselves. He could have reacted in fear, Mephibosheth, when David was calling him to the palace. Think about it. Would you have went for that invitation? Sure, I'll go. I would have had a steel brace around my neck, walked in full armor, had a couple nine millimeters hidden. But he walks through his fear thinking, maybe, just maybe, don't you wish that someone 
would just give you a chance? Listen to me. Jesus has already given you a chance. You got to believe that you're worthy of the chance. Doesn't everyone want a second chance? Doesn't everyone want to believe that it could be better? Doesn't everyone secretly wish their past could be wiped clean? Don't you wish you could take some people that love to bring up your past and, and write your past on an Etch-A-Sketch and get it really bold and then shake it in front of them? God, God, Just wipe them clean. Listen to me. Jesus has wiped your past clean. In fact, Scripture tells us this that he chooses not to remember our sins anymore as far as the east is from the west. Go to the furthest tips of the universe and keep going. That's where your sins are gone. They're just gone and gone and gone, and he forgot about them. We keep trying to go back. Let me reel that 19th year of your life in. Let me reel when you were 34 and just married. Let me reel this in when we went there. Listen, Jesus is sending them that way, and we keep trying to send them back this way. The cross says go. You see, God desires for you to trade your past for his presence. He longs to change your name. He wants you to drop that label from your past that continues to haunt you. He wants to offer you life and life to the fullest. He's hunting you down to give you grace. Now listen to me. Christ followers, because we live in a world that everything computes, like, okay, I really deserve it now because I did this. In our American mind, it says, climb the ladder, do this and you get that, do this and you get that. Grace has no ladders, Grace Community Church. It's just, here it is. Grace doesn't compute in our minds. And so it's very difficult for us as Christian believers to accept grace because in our minds, like, I don't really deserve it. Listen, has nothing to do with deserving. It's unconditional. But the second we receive it, we are able to step through fear and say, well, guess what? I know who I am in Christ. I'm going to walk in this grace and love, and I'm going to live my redemptive potential, and I'm leaving the wasteland. John 1.14, don't turn there, but it says that, that the Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Then it says that his life was full of grace and truth. Full of both. Here's the problem, though, with us as Christ followers. We keep trying to have this balance, grace and truth. Like we're trying to build our homes and our churches. Like, okay, I've given out this much grace. That means I need to give out this much truth. Jesus gave them both to the fullest capacity possible. There was never a time that Jesus walked and said, well, I've given you three tries on this of truth. I only give you three tries of grace. He never tried to bounce. Jesus didn't walk around. He said he was full of both. And there were moments where he just full bore grace, full bore truth. But listen, how do you operate in your truth and grace? It's really easy for us to operate in truth. Well, <laughs> I saw you. You did that. That means this. Yet the minute you take that add and subtract, that list, that box, that policy to grace, it's no longer grace. If you attach anything to grace, anything to grace, if you say, I'll give them grace, I'll give them grace if, if you put an if to grace, it's not grace. If you put a with to grace, 
it's not grace. If you put conditions to grace, it's not grace. If you classify and have a policy when you extend grace, it's not grace. Let me ask you something. Are you really, truly givers of grace? Think about it. Well, I think they deserve grace. How many times have you said that? Has nothing to do with deserve. It doesn't like, well, I see this pattern of like, boy, they're getting their act together. Boy, they really need an extra dose of grace. Listen, has nothing to do with their pattern of life. It's just grace. Let me ask you, are you truly a giver of unconditional, undeserved grace? Or do you have these little systems? How about with your kids? Well, I raised my kid this way and this one here. I'm going to do the same for them that I did for her. And so it comes along, and this happens in their life, and you say something like this. Well, we want to let you know, honey, that because we did this with him, we're going to do the same for you. That's not grace. That's a condition. That's a clause. Yet Jesus gives us grace that has no policy, no conditions, no checkoff list. He just says, here, take it. See, we don't know how to wrap our minds around that as Christ followers. Well, Jim, that's kind of messy, isn't it? You bet it is. Grace should be gloriously messy. We shouldn't be able to say, well, now I know. That was a good time to give grace because they did that. If you go down that path and say because of, guess what? It wasn't grace. It was just rewarding behavior, rewarding good works. Ophibosheth is about to receive grace in an unusual way. Look what happens in verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says this, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to David, he bowed down, Saul David, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. You know, he must have had that look. Wouldn't you? Walk in there. This might be the last day I live. Maybe it was the armor he was standing in. Maybe it was like, I deserve death. And he says, don't be afraid. He read his countenance. He said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Can you imagine saying, wait wait a minute, say what? Can you say that again? You're going to do what? And why? You're not going to, no, I'm not. Well, that's the case. Let me get rid of these. <laughs> Undeserved grace. He says, I'm going to allow you to eat at the king's table. Instead of death, I'm going to get not, instead of the food scraps on the floor, instead of being in the wasteland, I'm going to feed you filet mignon. And I'm going to give you Jim Brown's favorite fresh Chesapeake Bay shrimp and crabs with Old Bay seasoning every day. Instead of feeling like a nobody, Mephibosheth, he puts his name on the king's mailbox, Mephibosheth. Instead of $200 to get out of jail free, he gives him a, a suite on boardwalk in Park Place. Instead of, of, of living on Baltic and Mediterranean, when he looks out his window, he says, hey, I want you to have all that land. And by the way, now that I'm giving that to you, I recognize that you have a little trouble getting around. One of, I'm going to have one of the servants who has 25 sons and servants, and they're going to serve you every day. Can you imagine Mephibosheth? Wait a minute. Are you talking to me? Do you know who I am? I don't deserve this. 
okay, you're pulling my leg, right? There's someone around. There's a noose about ready to drop somewhere. No, I'm just going to give that to you. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. And I want to show some kindness and grace to you. And I love my God. It's easy to create an all-truth church, by the way. It's easier to create an all-grace church. Yet to do both well, it gets really messy. It's like, and it gets inconsistent. It goes like, well, you did that with that couple. Why don't you do that for this couple? You did that for him. Why don't you do that for him? Listen to me. Grace is inconsistent. There's not a formula for it. You listen to the Spirit of God. He says, give it. You give it. You don't care what the guy beside you says. Mephibosheth bows down in verse 8, it says. And says, look what he says. Look how he sees himself. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a what? Dead dog like me. Isn't it interesting that we feel that way about ourselves because of labels that people have placed on us? Because of a poor decision in our past? We feel like, I could never be that person. I'm just a nobody. I don't have the degree that she has or he has. I'm not as eloquent as she is or he is. I'm not as smart. I don't have this and I don't have that. And it's like, we don't know what to do with that kind of grace. Why is it that we refuse to accept the redeeming work of grace on the cross? You see, here's what Jesus did. He took our former names to the cross and replaced them with his righteousness. He took the sins of our past and renamed us son of God, daughter of God. Why do we still live as though the cross didn't include us? Why is it so easy for us to say, well, I'm not worthy of the cross and we walk like this? Why do we live as though the cross didn't have our sins and our names on it? Here's why. Because we let people who know us the least define us the most. Think about that for a second. How true that is in our life. We let people who know us the least define us the most. It's like we walk to this period of our lives years later, and they might say, huh, I heard that you used to smoke pot. That means you're this. We let these people who don't know what God has been doing in our hearts for 20 and 30 and 40 years, we let people who've only heard about our past, heard that we were dropouts, heard that we committed adultery, heard that we left our husband, heard that we were addicted, heard that we were thieves, heard that we were felons, heard, 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 who don't even know us, who know us the least, the us the most. Listen to me, your definition comes in Jesus Christ. Please hear me on this. Now listen, not only for you, but for every single other person who's a Christ follower. I tell you, if we begin to wrap our heads around true grace, receiving it and giving it, we'll have to put armed soldiers at the doors of Grace Community Church because people will run. They'll camp out all week long. We will have to bust out these walls because you are extending who Jesus Christ is. 
See, here's the problem. Long before you decided what you would do with God, he decided what he would do with you. (laughs) Way before you decided what you would do with him, he decided what he would do with you. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take your sins to the cross and I'm going to redeem you and you're going to be one of my kids. One of the things I love about Grace Community Church, we have plenty ways to go and they say, we understand that we are all equal in Jesus Christ. No matter how ugly your past might be, Jesus loves redeeming situations, marriages, and people. We need to be comfortable. Listen, I'm not saying this is easy. We need to be comfortable with the glorious mess of grace. Sometimes we need just to accept it and say and, and recognize it never computes. Listen to me, church. It never computes. Never. One size fits all when it comes to grace. The second you begin to frame it or box it into a certain shape, then it's no longer grace. As soon as you place a condition on why you give grace, it's not grace. It's earned behavior rewarding it. Think about Jesus' life. Just just briefly, secondly. Think about how he extended grace. Was he consistent in his grace? No. But he gave it whenever he felt led by the Father to give it, and he was full on. Think about it. He picked 12 people out of hundreds of people to be his followers. Well, why didn't he pick them? Why didn't he pick them? Well, I was, can you imagine the people of the day? <laughs> you picked the fishermen? I know the whole Old Testament. Grace. He chose three that were his inner circle out of the 12. Do you think there were ever times when the others wonder, well, hey, I'm just as committed as they are. Why did you? Because it's, it's gloriously messy. He didn't heal everybody he came in contact with. And many ask, but not everybody was healed physically. Huh, wonder why? Because he wasn't consistent. He was consistently inconsistent in our minds. He didn't feed everyone. He just fed who he felt led to feed by what the Father was telling him to do. He wasn't consistent there. Can you imagine him walking through crowds? Like, He's walking through a crowd, and there were thousands of people who followed him who needed children healed. And he's walking through, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, all these people with people need healed. Pardon me, excuse me, bam, healed. Pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, bam, healed. It's like, what about me? Why didn't he give the grace to every single person along the way? He was consistently inconsistent in his giving of grace. And listen, as soon as we wrap our minds that grace can be gloriously messy, and it isn't in the tight-knit box, oh, man, it changes everything. Jesus constantly battled the righteous with his moves of grace. By the way, it has nothing to do with being fair. You want fair? Just go take a look at the cross. Well, how come and how come you're willing to it has nothing to do with your giving grace because, well, you really feel like they're at a good spot in their lives because they, you know, they're getting their act together. We should give them grace. Listen to me. Put a condition, it's not grace. You see, when we awaken to the reality that Jesus finds us precious and valuable, the cripple mentality leaves us. We are good at writing policies as Christ followers in churches. 
how can it be grace if it's run through the grid of a policy? Let me just say this. I am so eternally grateful to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that the condition of my salvation wasn't based on me meeting a policy that he had drafted. Come on, church. Are you really a person who extends grace? Are you a person who just conditionalizes it and gives it? Like, think about it. Do you do do it with your kids? Do you do it with your classmates, with your teachers? Do you just give it? Or it's like, haven't you even said to people, you know, they were really deserving of that grace and you kind of felt good about it. It's like, you justify it. Like, we even feel better about it if we can justify why we give it. It's like, it's like, well, the Bible says that, you know, that he who, he, ha, it's like, I feel good. It's almost like we've developed a group of Christians that have to justify why they give grace. Listen, listen to me. I know this is messy. I know it is. But do we need to develop a policy for grace? If we do, it's not grace. Jesus walked in grace and truth to the fullest. Let me just say it this way. Grace helps you discover who you were born to be. How many of you have had dreams and aspirations to be someone when you were young? How many of you had these dreams that were snuffed out because someone said something to you about the condition of the sinful past of your... How many of you had dreams and... And, and you're far from it because you refuse to believe that you're deserving of grace. That somehow your, 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 your past is too horrible. How many of you are still living in the wastelands, the low to bars of life? How many of you are still living there because of a divorce? Because of a lost job? Because of a wayward child? Because of a bankruptcy? Because of a bad decision? Because a mother or father told you that the way you lived your life, no Christian should ever live that way. And that's all you remember. And you have guilt and shame from when you were 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. How many of you are still there because of a felony conviction? It's like, oh, I hope no one ever finds out that, 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 I, uh, that I stole this when I was 34. And that I'm a completely different person now, but... They'll never, never believe that somehow God could redeem a, a thief. Imagine that. There was a thief on the cross beside him. He said, I'll see you in paradise. How many of you are still there because of a lingering addiction with porn? How many of you are there because of an abortion or an abusive past? How many are there because you dropped out of high school? How many of you are there because of a run-in with a pastor of a church you used to be part of? It's time right now to, to, to listen to me, to tell yourself, it's not over. You are more than the label of your past, whether you've put it on yourself or someone continues to put it on you. Well, I think Mephibosheth was in a rut. He had given up on his dreams. I wonder, though, I just wonder, when he was like three and four years old, if he ran to the the room and he sat up in the king's chair as a three and four year old and kind of sat there and said, one day I'll be King Fibber. I wonder if he ever dreamt as a little boy of 
one day being the next king in line. I wonder if that got squashed when he was crippled as a kid and he realized that he didn't deserve it. I wonder what he's thinking now when he's standing before David and David saying, hey, see those 50 acres and see that, all that, that land out there? Hey, we're having filet mignon tonight. Come and eat. Not only tonight, guess what? Come every night. We have this all the time. And by the way, here, here's 25 servants. They're going to serve you and fan you and put you in the king's chair. I wonder what he was thinking. What the world just happened? And when you get hit and blitzed by grace, don't you say, why'd they do that? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had a lot? Why'd they do that? In other people's lives because we gave them grace? Have you considered that God longs to station you and me for greatness so that he gets the glory and grace gives us a chance to live out our lives and become the Paul Potts of the world instead of living in the wasteland so that he gets the glory and we don't get the glory and we make him shine brighter? Why do we keep knocking out people's lights who were intended to glorify God and make him bigger? Second Chronicles 69 says it this way, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Listen to me. You can't have a heart fully committed to him believing that you're worthless, that you're a nobody, that you belong in the wasteland. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus opted for mess over easy. Don't you think that David did the same thing here? Don't you think that sooner or later some of the religious people came to David and said, I'm not eating with him. Can you imagine at dinner time when the dinner bell rang in the king's palace? Bing, 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 bing. Can you imagine hearing this noise of a grown man who's 20 plus years old? It's dinner time. He grabs his walker and through the palace floor, you could hear the echoes. Clunk, clunk, clunk. Kunk, kunk, kunk. And every time the palace heard it, they thought of grace, 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 grace. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were givers of that kind of clunking grace? Grace moves you past your past. I love the phrase that closes out this narrative. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he, what? What's the next word? Always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. I love the picture there. He always ate. The grace didn't stop. And he was crippled. In other words, he didn't deserve it. But he ordered filet mignon every chance he got. The one thing I know for sure is that grace makes me a lot better than I could ever be on my own. The other thing I know is this. God wants us to be people of grace. 
He wants you and me to offer it. Maybe, just maybe, it begins by us that are in the wasteland saying, I'm going to give myself some of this grace. I'm going to walk through my own shame and guilt and say, guess what? I serve a God of grace. I don't deserve it, but sign me up and give me a seat at the king's table. Amen. Maybe today you're still haunted by your past, by the ghosts and the labels and the actions. Church, we have a God that loves us who doesn't rule by policy, by what is fair. He is full of grace and truth. Amen? Lord, help us today. I pray that we would receive it the way you intended it to be received. I pray that we would give it the way you want us to give it. I pray that we would place zero conditions on grace. I pray, Jesus, that people will be moved from the wastelands, from the low debars of life, and they would sit at the chair that's been reserved for them at the king's table. And they would belt out the tunes of God in a mighty, mighty way. We love you, God. Thank you for your amazing grace. Amen.
Doesn't it feel so good to be able to say that today? I'm not who I used to be. So don't call me by the names that you used to call me by. And don't label me by the things that you used to label me with. Because God has given me extravagant, incredible grace. So I'm ready to give that kind of grace out to other people. It didn't make sense for me, so it doesn't have to make sense when I give it to someone else, right? God, we love you, and we love the grace you give and what it does in our lives. God, I thank you for what you're doing even in this room right now, in the hearts of men and women who are experiencing your grace. Friends, don't spend your energy trying to think up all the reasons why it shouldn't work and it shouldn't make sense. God's dealt with all of those reasons on the cross already. Just say yes to God's grace in your life and walk in the freedom that he gives you. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you give us, for the new life, the new name, the fresh start. And we will live in that today and rejoice in it today. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week living in his grace. We'll see you next week.